What do API integrations have to do with logistics? Don't be the last to know and tune into season two, episode four, when I speak to Graham from Border Buddy, and he talks about what they've done in the API integration space, and you can learn so much more about that space and about how it can help your business. Welcome to Let's Talk Supply Chain. My name is Sarah Barnes Humphrey, and each week I bring you the top supply chain professionals in the industry. You will learn about best practices, new innovation, and most up-to-date information about supply chain. I believe that collaboration is the future of business, and I have designed this show to ensure you have all the information you need to succeed in business and in your supply chain. This episode was produced in collaboration with Border Buddy, the most innovative online customs platform out there. And here is what Graham, the founder, has to say. How long does it take you to get a duty rate or guidance on the right HS classification from your current customs broker? With Border Buddy's new revolutionary self-service technology, you will never go traditional again. We have created a platform that allows you to get instant quotes on duties, taxes, and customs fees to import your products into North America. To get 10% off your first clearance, sign up at borderbuddy.com forward slash Let's Talk Supply Chain. Hello and welcome back to Let's Talk Supply Chain. This episode is going to make you think about what you're currently doing in supply chain in regards to your compliance as well as your ethics. We're going to talk about bribes. We're going to talk about red flags to look at. We're going to talk about business leadership, what businesses should do to ensure compliance in their supply chain. And we're talking about all of that with Richard Bestrong. His story is compelling and inspiring and will hopefully make you step back and take a look at the compliance in your supply chain. Talk to your leaders, talk to your team, your supply chain team, and just make sure what you're doing in supply chain is compliant. But before I get into Richard's bio, I want to do a shout out to Sourcing VP. They left a review about the show uh, back in 2017 during season one called Two Babes Talk Supply Chain. Here is what they have to say. The world is full of social media sites, podcasts, blogs, and lectures. Two Babes Talk Supply Chain cuts through that clutter and delivers relevant and pertinent interviews with today's leading thought leaders. I am a fan and look forward to each episode. Thank you so much, Sourcing VP. Without you rating and reviewing the show, others cannot find us and learn from our guests and the thought leaders that we have on the show. So thank you, everybody, for rating us rating us and reviewing us if you want to go ahead and do that i will feature you in an upcoming episode so back to richard richard bestrong spent much of his career as an international sales executive and currently consults and speaks on foreign bribery ethics and compliance issues from that frontline perspective richard was the vice president of international sales for a large publicly traded manufacturer of police and military equipment which included residing and working in the uk In 2007, as part of a cooperation agreement with the United States Department of Justice and subsequent 
uh, immunity from prosecution in the UK, Richard assisted the United States, UK, and other governments in their understanding of how FCPA bribery and other export violations occurred and operated in international sales. In 2012, Richard was sentenced as a part of his own plea agreement and served 14 and a half months at a federal prison camp returning home in December 2013. Richard now consults, writes, and speaks about current frontline anti-bribery and compliance issues. Richard was named one of the Ethisphere's 100 Most Influential in Business Ethics for 2015 and is a contributing editor of the FCPA blog. Richard's chapter, The Anatomy of a Bribe, appears in the 2016 edition of The Trace International How to Pay a Bribe. Richard was also recognized by J.D. Supra as top author in the 2016 and 2017 Reader's Choice Awards for Compliance. In 2017, he was named by Compliance Week as a top mind in the field of governance, risk, and compliance. Welcome to the show, Richard. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be on our show. This has been almost a year in the making, and I'm so honored for you to be here. Well, Sarah, that's a mutual admiration society, and thank you for having me on your podcast. It's a pleasure to chat with you again. Awesome. Well, let's get started. So um, what kind of training did you have to prepare in your role as international sales VP? And how did you first approach the market? So this is going back to 1997. And before I took my first flight as an international sales vice president, my former employer provided me a copy of the FCPA that's the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which is the U.S. anti-bribery law. And they said, Richard, take your time and read this. It's going to govern your international conduct. Uh, if you don't understand any parts of this, or if you need help to understand it, we're happy to get you resources. Now, Sarah, that law is pretty simple. You can't bribe or conspire to bribe a public official to gain or retain business. So I certainly didn't need any additional resources. And before I took that first flight, I signed off that I would respect and obey that law. As to how I was going to address and attack the market, so to speak, what I did back then is very often what we still see. Uh, I was not budgeted or resourced to build an international um, network of directly compensated employees, right? So what I was going to do was to build a network of intermediaries, of third parties, agents, distributors. And these are entities all over the world that are set up to partner with very often Western-based multinationals to help them grow the business. And very often, these distributors or intermediaries, they're pretty much paid on a success fee basis, Sarah. That's why it's such an efficient way of addressing the market as opposed to hiring direct employees all over the world, that they don't get paid unless they're success. Sometimes that's on a commission basis or a success fee basis. And in some cases, it's in a markup. So they will actually buy and sell the product or services. So that's how I was going to address the market. 
Great, great. And it sounds like, you know, a really, really good model. Um, and uh, I, I really like that approach to international markets, especially when you haven't been in those markets before or just getting started, things like that. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with using third parties to grow your market and to address a market. The challenge is, and we'll talk more about this, they really are the Achilles heel of an anti-bribery compliance program because, well, Sarah, they're acting on behalf of the company, but yet they're not entirely controlled by the company. So very often when we look at our global corruption scandals, it's usually the third party that's the epicenter of them. That's an interesting point. I didn't really, you know, look at it that way. And I don't know if a lot of our listeners do. Well, I think in Canada, there's a, there's a challenge. And this is very similar to what I was thinking back in 1997. You know, there, you don't see the level of enforcement on the Canadian anti-bribery law that you see in the United States as an example. Okay. And some of that is just because of the timing that the law in Canada is more recent. The um, resources among prosecutors and the RCMP investigatory team is relatively new. So where we have a lot of sensitivity and awareness in the United States over this issue, it's because we've been dealing with it for a while and we see the level of enforcement. I think that's just starting to come into vision of small, medium, and large enterprises in Canada. And what about globally? I mean, we're talking about North America. We do have some listeners out in Europe and Asia. How, how does it fare in, you know, sort of the global market? That's a great question. And it really, it, it really depends on the area. But I can say generally, Sarah, the tide is rising where more and more countries are following the example of the United States, of Canada, of Great Britain that have these anti-bribery laws. We have the OECD convention that countries are signing up for, which means that they are going to stand up uh, anti-bribery regulations and enforcement. But it is haphazard at best. Uh, we have some countries, for example, China, where there's a robust internal focus on anti-corruption, that is the prosecution of Chinese party and state officials that are taking bribes, but much less of a focus on Chinese enterprises that are working overseas that might be engaging in bribery to win business where they're working. So it is a very, very, um, and sometimes troubling but it is not a sort of consistent level of enforcement. I don't think there's anywhere in the world where bribery is legal. The question is, does an individual country have the prosecutorial and investigatory resources, plus Sarah, the political will to enforce their laws? So for your listeners today, you need to think about markets, particularly frontier markets that are very exciting, lucrative business opportunities, but there's corruption risk as well in many of these markets. And you need to approach these regions with a very clear-eyed view of the risks that you face before you're actually in those markets. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great point. So let's get into the corrupt conduct. Um, if anybody knows your story, they know that you went from a white house offer to prison. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's a, there's a big story in between. How did it start with what we might consider to be grand corruption? Sarah, it didn't. Um, so what I find myself in my first few years and, you know, just by way of context from 1997 to 2007, I was overseas, Sarah, an average of 250 days a year all over the world. And part of that time I was residing in the United Kingdom where the company had operations. But very early on in my work, I am out there meeting with existing third parties and intermediaries and distributors looking to sign up new ones. And I find myself in a place called Tierra del Fuego, which for your listeners in Canada, it's the sort of other part of the earth. It's the southernmost tip of Argentina. Um, it's been called the southernmost habitable city on earth. And I'm meeting with one of my intermediaries and a little bit of a description of this intermediary. I had no indication of corruption or corrupt intent. These sort of things that you might think of as red flags were not evident. This is a person that had a bank account in his name, in his country. I had done some small transactions with him. And Sarah, he was doing all the things that your listeners would like their responsible business partners to do. Identify opportunities. Um, introduce me to end users to make technical sales presentations. The type of defense products that I was selling um, were highly complex. So those required very technical presentations. And this distributor, this agent is introducing me to end users to make those presentations. He's translating documents where necessary. All good things. And I'm there to talk about a large upcoming tender. And I think it was over maybe lunch or dinner as we're talking about this future business opportunity. He says, Richard, um, by the way, as part of my success and my success fee, because as I said before, Sarah, most of these entities are paid on a success fee basis. He said, I'm paying tolls to win the business. Now, I knew right there what he meant by tolls. And in the next 15 years, I'm going to hear some really interesting words to describe a bribe from tolls to making people happy to taking care of people. Um, I read one enforcement action where there were chocolates. Someone else, the people I add to my list now, someone gave me one. They were called sunshine payments. And there's a... Um, U.S. corruption case going on right now where the jury's trying to understand what the defendant meant by meatballs, all right? So there are a lot of interesting words used in this uh, particular issue. The one word that I didn't ever hear was bribe. So here it is. He is intertwining corrupt and legitimate business services. He's doing all those responsible things that we talked about but he's paying tolls when he needs to pay tolls. And Sarah, what I, I think what I remember most about this conversation, besides the fact that Tierra del Fuego is a very interesting place to visit, 
Um, he wasn't asking me for anything. He wasn't saying, look, Richard, I'm, pay- I'm paying these tolls and the tolls are going up. We need to renegotiate my commission. He wasn't saying there are a lot of toll takers. I need a bigger marketing allowance. He's just telling me to take a deep breath and relax because this is how we get things done here. <clears throat> and right there, I'm thinking, well, this is only a red flag if I make it one. And I'm certainly not thinking I'm in the earshot of international law enforcement looking out at some Antarctic tundra. So what did I do? I'm saying, look, this is only a problem if I make it one. And I nodded my head. And right there, Sarah, by the knowledge and the promise that a bribe would be paid, even though it had not been paid and even though there was still no guarantee we would win this opportunity, but just by that nod, I violated the law as a co-conspirator to violating the FCPA. Now, I did not go to prison for nodding my head, but there really is a slippery slope when we sometimes think of our behaviors and how things happen. And for me, this is where my slippery slope began. And I'm going to hear this conversation play itself out in region over region over the next few years. Wow. That's, uh, I, I mean, it's incredible. Just the nod of the head. You talked about chocolates, different things like that, that most people wouldn't even think, you know, would be a problem. And again, you talk about rationalizing it, saying that it's only a red flag if I make it to be one. So I guess there's a couple of questions in this, you know, how did you rationalize it moving forward? Cause you said that that was just one instance. And then I guess my other question to, to you is then if it's a nod of the head, how did you actually get caught? So let's talk about a few different elements of how I rationalize this. But Sarah, before I pull back that emotional curtain, I'd like to just hit the pause button for a minute because, you know, I want to be clear. I'm happy to share these ethical traps and ethical lapses for you and your listeners to sort of better understand what happens on the front lines of international business. But this isn't a podcast about ethical spinning. So I just want to be clear that cheating was a choice. No one forced me or pressured me to violate the law. Okay. I had other options. So while I share some of these emotional issues, the justifications, the temptations, the rationalizations, I'm not trying to deflect responsibility onto my former employer onto other people, the the decisions that I'm going to share with you are ones that I took into my own hands. And ultimately I took responsibility for them and went to prison for them. So with that said, uh, let's talk about what happened. So as I said, the first thing I'm thinking about is, Hey, I'm not going to get caught. And for your listeners that have some interest in social psychology, I think I've become an armchair social psychologist lately. They call that optimism bias. Optimism bias is when we think that the chances of us getting caught are less than the chances of anyone else getting caught. And the worst part of optimism bias is the longer we're not caught, the more we think we're never going to get caught. But you know what, Sarah? It wasn't about that. I thought I was smart. I thought I was successful. 
I had a robust set of commercial objectives and a lucrative compensation plan, and I wanted to meet those objectives. I wanted to max out on my bonus. So as I start to look around, as I'm starting to work overseas, I'm seeing I'm not the only one doing this. I'm seeing other employees of multinationals. I'm seeing intermediaries engage in it and no one's getting caught. So I'm thinking this is my route to success. There's a wonderful book and I might recommend one or two during the podcast, but this would certainly be on the top of my list. It's called giving voice to values by Mary Gentile. And she's engaged in a lot of behavioral research. And she says, we all want to live up to our own standards of personal and corporate integrity, as long as it doesn't put us at a competitive disadvantage. So that was the sort of mentality I started to think about where Sarah, I started to look at commercial success and ethics and integrity in some parts of the world um, as a zero-sum game, right? I'm working in regions where the institutions of state are weak, procurement personnel are poorly compensated and trained. The rules of procurement are not marked by transparency like we see in the U.S. and Canada. They're marked by secrecy. And I'm starting to think, what does the company really want, compliance or sales? Because I don't think I can deliver both. Now, the one call that could have saved me a 10-year crucible through the criminal justice system was right back in Tierra del Fuego. And I could have called my former employer and said, what do you want? Do you want these aggressive sets of commercial objectives? Or do you want me to keep with that FCPA paperwork that I signed? Because the way I see it, they're not aligned. But instead, I took ethics and integrity into my own hands so now I call compliance leaders, my friends and my colleagues. Back then I thought of it as the business prevention department. And I, I hope we'll get a chance to talk more about this, Sarah, because that tension between the pressure to succeed and the pressure to comply is in an inherent part of any organization that's committed to top line growth, right? So any organization that wants to grow, particularly in some of these lucrative markets, people's values are going to get challenged. The question is, how does that tension get addressed for everyone's well-being? And finally, Sarah, I guess the other cloud on what I call my perfect storm of how I rationalize this um, is I wasn't losing any sleep over it, right? From nice inner city hotels and business class lounges I wasn't thinking about the ethical implications and the ethical consequences of my decisions. I wasn't spending my night on the Transparency International website and thinking about how even petty corruption can rob societies of good governance, human rights, and economic development. I'm looking at it from the business level as a win-win. I mean, think about it. I'm selling armored vests and armored vehicles. These are life-saving products, and I never compromised the quality of product. I wasn't pulling layers out of a bulletproof vest. So I'm thinking the end user is getting an amazing product, a world-class product. My company is happy. They're getting all these sales. They might even be hiring employees to manufacture some of these large orders. 
I'm meeting all my commercial objectives, my quota, my forecasts. Everybody's happy. The intermediary moves to the next decision, to the next transaction. And that poorly paid public official gets a little something to make ends meet. So I was ethically blind to the consequences of my conduct on society, my former employer, and regrettably on my family. And there's a wonderful paper by a Harvard business professor named Francesco Gino, G-I-N-O. And she wrote a paper called Self-Serving Altruism. And what her research demonstrates is that when we think our unethical conduct benefits others, as I did, we think of it as morally acceptable and as counterintuitive as this might sound, Sarah, we think of ourselves as altruistic. So adding all of those up, I found it very easy to rationalize my conduct, not in how to circumvent the law, but on how to be successful. Interesting. So we're going to come into more about the business leadership and you know what they can do when it comes to their workforce. But before we do that, can you tell us a little bit more about maybe what red flags somebody in that kind of position um, in supply chain as a supply chain professional, what they should be looking for when dealing with third parties and, and thinking about compliance and ethics? Oh, that's a great question. I'm happy to do that. So let's, let's talk about some of these red flags, particularly with respect to third parties. So Sarah, you know, we met at a um, anti-corruption and trade conference. Um, I go all over the world and speak to these conferences and at least 60% of them are dealing with third party risk. Okay. And when we look at our, anti-corruption compliance programs are almost around third-party risk because if we look at enforcement actions, I forgot the percentage, but it's over 80% of all anti-bribery enforcement actions involve a third party, an intermediary, an agent, a distributor. So everybody's concerned about this issue. As I said before, they're the Achilles heel of a compliance ethics and integrity program. The problem, Sarah, is that not all third parties share our concerns. And I've heard many of them talk about how they consider these anti-bribery laws almost colonial in nature, that they have no place in their society, that, you know, gift giving and generosity has been a part of their culture for years and years, all the way to it's tolerated here. It's not prosecuted here. The problem is if you put paperwork in front of some of those same third parties and say, well, we can't do business together unless you sign off that you will respect and obey these anti-bribery laws and our own internal ethics and compliance programs. Sarah, they're happy to sign it because they don't take it seriously and because they know that the only way they can make money is through partnerships with recognized, successful multinationals. So if the only thing that's standing between them and that partnership is paperwork that they will respect and abide by these anti-bribery laws, they are happy to sign it because they don't take it seriously. 
So that's one red flag. Another is, and this is becoming really front and center of our anti-bribery discourse, is the fact that we live in a very fluid and dynamic world. There has been tremendous societal change with respect to anti-corruption in countries as diverse as Brazil, Saudi Arabia, China. So we live in this ever-evolving world, which means our risk profile is not static. It's fluid. And a lot of companies may have a robust onboarding and vetting process before they let a third party into what I call the circle of trust. Very often we see these um, due diligence processes as one and done or vetting and forgetting. So to give you an example, I don't want to get too academic here. I'm on the phone with one of my agents in South America. This was when I was already a cooperator with the FBI after I got caught. So the phone call was monitored. And this agent was sharing how he wasn't doing a lot of business, um, but that there was a new president just elected. And the president's going to appoint a new minister of interior and a new minister of defense. Those were my clients. And they were going to see all new people in the purchasing bureaucracy. And he goes, Richard, those are my buddies. And he said, quote, unquote, we're going to do a lot of business because they know they only have a few years to make their pension. So, Sarah, there's an example where a particular third party totally changed where they were on what I call the continuum of corruption just to just due to a change in the external environment. So we really need to think about how we monitor our risk because those are red flags that often happen and that are undetected because the due diligence is at the front door and not afterwards. So those Absolutely. And not necessarily something that, you know, everybody thinks about when they're having a conversation with any of their suppliers or people that they've been doing business with for, you know, a number of years, really. That's a great point. This, this risk goes up and down the supply chain. It's not only with potential subcontractors or clients, it's the people that you're upstream with as well. That's a great point. Absolutely. So you've had this experience, you, you've gone through so much, and I want to talk about it more from a business leadership point of view. Um, you know, from, from what you've learned from your experience, what can business leaders do um, to talk to their workforce and make sure they understand the implications of you know, these red flags and, and different things that come up as they do business on a, on a day-to-day basis. And maybe what are the most common gaps that you see where ethics, integrity, and compliance messages maybe are not getting through to the workforce and they really need to sort of step up that game to make sure that everybody understands the implications? Okay, so let's start with the first one. And if I forget the second one, please remind me because these are very important and robust questions. So the first, when we talk about compliance messaging and business leadership, Sarah, the question is, who's it coming from? Now, let's think about this. And I didn't make this rule up, I promise. Who do we tend to listen to the most in our work environment? It's our supervisor, right? The, 
the pe- the person or the people that are setting our objectives that are measuring our success. You know, the folks that might have a little voice in our performance appraisal. What are they saying? Because compliance, ethics, and integrity, when it gets when it gets articulated through a corporate narrative, through the business narrative, it just sounds a lot louder. Where when we hear messages of compliance, ethics, and integrity coming out of the compliance department, it sounds like a support function. So the question is, or rather the importance is, that these messages, okay, need to be intertwined and articulated through the business. Because that's what makes compliance visible, okay? That's when everybody's leaning together as a team to say, hey, we always want to make sure that what actually happens, that what, sorry, we all want to make sure that what we want to happen actually happens. And you only get that sort of teamwork through business dialogue and action where we see ethics and integrity anchored into the business. Because to address the second part of your question, where it often goes wrong is at that level of middle management. I'm often asked, what does tone at the top mean to me? Well, in most organizations, people on the front lines of business don't have daily interaction with the CEO, right? So from remote locales, um, someone's remote office might be the hotel for that night, right? Who is the tone at the top? Who is the voice of the company? It's the supervisor. That ring of middle-level management, more than any part of an organization, need to be ethics and integrity ambassadors. Because if they're not, they control the volume, Sarah, of the importance of getting business done. And they also control the volume of we always care how you get the business done. So when that level of management is always talking about, even during the most difficult times, right, maybe there's a shortfall in objectives, Right, there's a gap in financial performance for a particular reporting period. When those folks are saying, hey, we need to talk about a get well plan, we're having a tough quarter here, but before we talk about it, let's just make clear, this is a conversation about a license to succeed. That doesn't mean it's a license to cheat or take shortcuts. So if you're having a struggle or if you're facing risk in trying to deal with this situation, please talk about it. That's yeah, and that, that brings me to another point. You know, if you're an employee and and you've been put in this type of position, or you feel like you have, you know, what should an employee do if they're faced with something like this? So that's really the ultimate mess measure of ethics and integrity, Sarah. Is what are people doing at the worst time? Maybe they're struggling with their objectives. Um, maybe a little sleep deprived and jet lagged and they're faced with an ethical dilemma, right? And that decision often comes in a nanosecond and how that decision gets addressed. I think 
it, the tone is set, not during those times, but in the good times. And I think the way that has to happen is when business leadership, again, notice I said business leadership is showing a little bit of vulnerability of humility and humanity to say, look, you know, we, we think we have a great compliance program. And this is actually a, a big a tone that has to come from compliance and business. So I stand corrected there. And to say, look, we think we have a great program, but we might actually get it wrong, even if we don't mean to. So if you think in our organizational design, in our messaging, that we're sending mixed messages between that pressure to succeed and the pressure to comply, if you think there's a gap in our compliance program, again, it's not because we mean for there to be, but sometimes we're going to get it wrong. And when we do, come talk to us. I call that a courageous conversation, okay, because that's the sort of relationship that gets built up during the good time to know that people who might struggle, who face that decision, they're going to know they won't be embarrassed, they won't be humiliated or made to feel ashamed of, of the decision that they face. So I think where you show that, hey, sometimes we get it wrong and talk to us if we do, then when that moment comes, when someone does feel that commercial pressure and ethics and integrity are not looking like partners, they're going to say, you know what, I can hit the pause button and ask for help. And even if it's a difficult discussion, even if the people aren't on the other side of the line of that phone call are not happy with what I'm sharing, um, everybody is happy because it means we're addressing a weak link, not necessarily in a compliance program, but just in our business. That's where you see true partnership happening. Yeah, and it's got to run through the business and it's got to come from the top down. I mean, like you said, they, the employee needs to feel comfortable, you know, going to the leadership and letting them know that they don't feel comfortable. And the business leadership needs to, you know, be comfortable having those conversations and understanding where the employee comes from. Because like you said, it can be a very thin line. And um, I think everybody involved needs to be maybe sensitive to it, a little bit more sensitive. Yeah, I mean, Sarah, that's a great point. I mean, who knows risk better than the people who work in the middle of it every day? And corruption risk in China looks a lot different than corruption risk in South America. This is not a one-size-fits-all problem or solution. So, yeah, I think when people are showing, look, you know the real-world risk better than we do, so if we're not addressing it, come talk to us about it. I mean, I, I have the blessing and the pleasure of going all over the world talking to compliance leaders. And what keeps them up night is what at night is what they don't know. So how do you get to what you don't know? You're not necessarily going to find that in a data search. It's getting people to talk to you. It's opening up and showing and, showing and demonstrating that you're very open and welcoming to what could be a difficult discussion. Yeah, and hopefully, you know, the business will recognize that, you know, and actually praise them for, you know, bringing it to their attention. And that's where I think we, we need to go in all of this. So I just want to, you know, I want to thank you for sharing your story 
I want to thank you for being authentic and doing what you do, um, traveling around the world, talking to people about your story, your experience. I mean, it sometimes can't be easy or, or most of the time can't be easy. So first of all, before we get to the last question, I just want to say thank you very much um, because you do so much for the community. Well, thank you, Sarah. And it's such an honor and a pleasure to join you in today's podcast. So thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. So what's next for Richard and how can our listeners contact you for more information? Well, um, what's next? A couple of different things. I'm still traveling quite frequently. It won't be ever 250 days a year, but it's wonderful um, traveling again just by way of context. My passport and international travel privileges and all my civil rights were just restored in January of 2017 with the termination of my probation. And I got caught in 2007. So I'm very grateful that this 10-year crucible is now over. And I get to travel around the world and to hear what's going on. So that's just such a pleasure. And for me, it's, a, it's not so much on the learning. It's not so much on the teaching. It's on the learning because I'm really better understanding what some of these real-world risks are. As I shared before, they change. Um, I also had the pleasure of partnering with MasterCard International, where we launched a four-license anti-bribery training film, which is just wonderful. So that was a fun project where MasterCard hired actors and recreated even some of the scenes that we talked about today. So that was a lot of fun as well. So that's sort of where my journey is right now. Thank you for asking. Awesome. So how can our listeners contact you for more information? Well, a couple of different ways. According to my children, I tweet too much. So you can um, join me on Twitter at Richard Bistrong. Uh, my website is www.richardbistrong.com, and you can contact me through there. And I also blog quite frequently on the FCPA blog. So for people that really want to take a deeper dive uh, into this field uh, and understand sort of on a global basis what's going on, that's a wonderful daily news feed. So I would certainly welcome any of your listeners to contact me who might want to continue the discussion. Great. Well, there you have it, listeners. From a White House offer to prison, Richard has overcome so much. And I just want to say thank you again for your service in educating people and speaking your truth so we can all learn from you and your experiences. Thank you again for coming on the show and good luck with everything in the future. Uh, for our listeners, visit Richard's website for more information as well. It's R-I-C-H-A-R-D. B-I-S-T-R-O-N-G dot com. And this episode will be on our website, let's talk supply com forward slash season two dash episode five. So again, Richard, congratulations. Good luck. Um, I'm so excited to watch what you're going to be doing in the future. And it's always a pleasure to hear from you and hear your story. And uh, I don't get tired of it and just love what you're doing in the community. Thank you so much, Sarah. What a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today in this eye-opening episode about bribery and compliance. Next week, 
is our next Woman in Supply Chain episode with Bindia Vakil, CEO and founder of Brazil Inc., one of the top supply chain management companies in North America. We're going to be talking about her journey to success and her revolutionary supply chain mapping intelligence and patented supply chain analytics, as well as risk and resiliency in your supply chain. And this is also you can identify failure points quickly. So join us for this powerful episode. And remember to go to ships.com, that's S-H-I-P-Z.com, and sign up to be the first ones to know about how we are disrupting the industry. Remember to rate and review the show to be highlighted in an episode. And you can even take a screenshot of the episode that you're listening to, share it on Instagram and tag us so that we know that you are sharing the episodes and sharing the knowledge in your community. And we will definitely feature you on the show. And our Instagram handle is at Let's Talk Supply Chain. I hope that you have an amazing day. I want to thank you again for all your support and for tuning into the episodes every week. But remember everybody, ship happens. Ship happens.